morning. All right. It's good to be in uh, church, the house of the Lord. We're glad to have you here with us. And if you are watching uh, online, thank you for uh, connecting uh, virtually. We're glad that you are here with us as well. Uh, we are going to be uh, continuing in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, and uh, they are trying to work out a little technical issue, and then we'll be uh, ready to, uh, to start. So, uh, yeah, so we'll give them just a quick second. So uh, maybe you haven't quite filled your coffee at home, uh, uh, so you got a little extra grace. Here's mine. Thank you very much. All right, well, let's do this. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of the Word. Uh, I am able to go ahead and do that. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, and it says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must... Oh, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is ex uh, accepted, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you that we have the tools uh, and the context to be able to just dive into scriptures like the, these and uh, really uh, I just pray that we would be able to receive what it is that you're communicating, what you're sharing for us, and that it would be applicable in our lives. In your mighty name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. So I've titled today's message, The Cost of Compromise, okay? The Cost of Compromise. And I got to tell you this. So uh, you go through when I'm going through and preparing these messages, you know, some of them are just easy and they're a joy. The content is, is just, it's just 
it's always relevant, but it's just simple, right? And then sometimes it's very controversial given cultural normatives today. And so those can be a little bit more difficult. And then you get into texts like this that have just so many rabbit holes to go down and getting everything kind of to a, a place where you can lay out exactly what it is that was being communicated in a way that's true to the scripture, relevant for us today is a little bit m more complicated. And so uh, I'll just kind of, just kind of, ha ha ha. I typically have about a hundred slides when I preach, okay? Uh, you may not realize that I go through about a hundred slides. Today I have 173. So I don't know that perspective wise. I'm going to try to move quickly for you, but I have a lot of things that I want to make sure that we have clarity on as we are looking at this. So uh, just follow along uh, as we move. So we'll begin here in verse 12, right? And he begins with this. He says, now, right? So now meaning that he's following his previous thought and that thought, which we laid out last week, you can go back and look at this, is that the gospel has always been tethered to the resurrection, right? Now it's not exclusive to the resurrection. This is why Jesus was able to say that I have come to declare the gospel, right? Before he had died because he was pointing towards the death, burial, and resurrection. Now we're on the other side and we're pointing back to the death, burial, and resurrection. But Paul says it goes beyond that. It goes on to the testimony of the individual saints. And so he lays out an argument for several uh, different testimonies and their interactions with Christ, the interactions with the resurrection and the way that they testify. And, and his encouragement is for us to have a testimony, right? So the gospel is a very personal thing. It's not this like foreign little thing we put into a box. Like you can't just put a simple definition in the dictionary and say, well, that's what it is. The gospel is ever expanding because it includes my experience with Christ, okay? So he says, now, so we've laid out this argument for the gospel. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul is coming from the perspective that he has established an historical fact for them. Okay, um, he's not in the position that I think that we might find ourselves in where we're trying to uh, come to grips with resurrection. No, Paul has laid out the argument that, that, that resurrection isn't just a fact because the government now says, well, something's happened to the tomb, right? Or that historians are talking about the wave of people that are accepting Christ. No, he says that there are some that are still alive, even at the time of writing this letter to the church in Corinth, that, that testify, and he's using legal terminology there, they're testifying, no, 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 we saw Jesus walking after the resurrection. Jesus is alive. Like I personally encountered him, right? And then Paul says, I too am one of those that encountered him, right? I was, a, I was somebody who was religious and I was hunting down Christians because I would not receive and, and accept that gospel presentation. So Jesus revealed himself to me. And so what is he saying? He says, this is a historical fact. I'm not sitting here and debating it. So so his, his argument or, or the position from which he's bringing his argument is not from a position of debate because he says, like, we've already established the fact that Jesus has been resurrected, okay? And I think that's important for us as we're looking through this text to remember that he's talking to an audience that he says, if you want to know whether Jesus is resurrected, you need to go and find one of the people that are still living and talk to them, right? Something that we don't have access to. So he says, now, if Christ is proclaimed, what is proclaimed? Well, this is kind of interesting because in some translations it translates to preach. And so to preach, to herald, especially truth. Now, if you'll remember last week, I defined the word to preach, right? When I was in verse one, and that I, I want you to note is actually a different word here. And that is to proclaim, especially good news. So there were two, like uh, Michael has been bringing us some different uh, forms of praise, some different forms of worship. There's actually different forms of preaching. In, in the context of Scripture. So some are proclamations of good news, right? This is the gospel. It's good news. And then sometimes it is, it is something that is anchored in truth, anchored in reality. And that's what Paul is doing here in verse 12. He's, he's proclaiming, he's preaching something based on what he is saying is a historical fact. And then he asks this question. He says, so if we've established this, 
right? If this is something that, that is not a debate anymore, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, I'll remind you, not the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We know that because he says in my previous writings, and then he goes on, uh, you know, to address some things. Uh, so we know this is not the first letter. This is a response to questions that they have. It is also a response to concerns that he has heard from others about the way that sin and false teaching has entered into the church, okay? And so he has obviously heard that some of them are making a case for the fact that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, note that he doesn't point to Christ here because the argument that's being made is not necessarily that Jesus isn't resurrected, but there is an argument that's being made that, that humanity will not experience that resurrection. So, where does this come from? This comes from a desire that we see, I believe it's a spiritual battle that we see even today. And it is the desire to make Christianity palatable without too much expect expectation from the consumer. This is an issue Paul is navigating just years after Christ's death. We're, we're not talking like hey, it's a hundred years later and there's a lot of like, you know, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Paul has laid out the case. There are still those alive today Day that personally encountered Jesus, right? They have a testimony. They will tell you about their encounter. And, and, and what is happening is that as that gospel message is being uh, presented to the world, there are people who are saying, man, this, this expectation to change the way you live is really difficult. It's really hard for some people and some people are gonna reject it. And so there's this work that takes place and it's, and it's a constant inside of the church to just, well, maybe it doesn't have to be like that, right? Maybe, maybe I can bring a little bit of who I am and how I feel into the uh, story. And so there are three authoritative voices that yes, were given a platform in the church during this time, okay? And so I want to address those real quick from a historical perspective. So these are three primary ideologies that were allowed to be communicated within the church. And, uh, and this was impacting doctrine, impacting the teaching. The first was the Sadducees and the Epicureans, and the Epicureans were followers of the Greek philosopher Epicurus. These were materialistic in thought, believing life would cease after death and that any other thinking was the result of man's vanity. And so there was a, a way of thinking that said, and it followed these, this, this kind of premise that when you die, that's it. it, it's all over, okay? All right, second way of thinking was that of the Stoics. These were followers of the Hellenistic philosopher Zeno. Uh, they were self-described logical thinkers proud of their view of the natural world, they held a pantheistic belief that ultimately a soul would be reabsorbed into the divinity that created it, okay? And so the idea was, well, whatever divinity created the individual, when they die, their body is dead, but their soul gets reabsorbed. So their personality is gone, their consciousness is gone, but the essence of who they are goes back into this God state. And then you had the other, the third major authority was the followers of Plato, and they maintained the soul was immortal and maintained its personality, but saw the body as the barrier to ultimate good. So the idea being that the body was the problem, right? Anything materialistic was the problem, so it needed to be destroyed. And so, the, like, your soul would go on to live, but there would not be a need for a resurrection, okay? And these views were being adopted into the faith, and followers were accepting them. So people were saying like, like I've got friends that believe this and you know, I kind of get where they're coming from. So I think I'll believe in Jesus, but I also believe in this. Now, now one of the really great examples I wanna use that's I think kind of present today is the way that witchcraft has been presenting itself to the Christian community, okay? And that is that uh, the idea, you know, when, when you get into some of these different books and in the intro to the to one of the books for Wicca, it says that Wicca is not a religion, so you can be a Christian and a Wiccan, right? It's, it's a really good 
kind of bait in that you, can, that you can be both and you go, well, that's crazy. We wouldn't believe that. But there are a lot of people who do. And there is, are especially young people who are buying into this. And so you are finding more and more Wiccan Christians. They will mesh the two of them together and they will take the things in Scripture that say, well, you know, this witchcraft, this view of, uh, uh, of, of magic is unacceptable. And they'll say, well, those are wrong in Scripture so that they can kind of mesh them together. And you might say, like, you know, what's your evidence of this? So you've heard me say this, right? I've talked about this from the platform. And then last week, my, my uh, daughter was actually at a uh, church camp, okay, with a group. Uh, I, don't, I really don't want to throw anybody under the bus because it has nothing to do with the group. It was a great group. They had a great time. But there was a girl there who was a Christian, and she pulled a rock out of her pocket and began to talk about its energy and its magic power and how you should have stones with you. And, you know, of course, she comes home, my daughter does, and she She's like, you know, this is exactly what you've been talking about, right? So, so, so it, is a, it is a reality that's unfolding around us. I'm going to be talking more about that. I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole, but it's the fastest growing faith base in our nation right now is, is a lot of this magic and witchcraft. So these views, they begin to kind of mesh together. And the problem is, is that it's splintering and separating the faith. Look here at Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Another example, Acts 17, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So there were people that heard this, and they followed, but there were others that said, man, you're talking about the resurrection. That's not something that we're going to talk about. Acts 23, verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So Paul is talking about this from firsthand experience, right? He says, like, I get it. Like, everywhere I go, there are groups of people who are both somewhat inside of the church, primarily outside of the church. And what are they doing? They're denying the resurrection. And so this desire to make Christianity more easily acceptable formed a number of Gnostic sects not encumbered by the resurrection of the body. Now, I have to go down a, a, a rabbit hole, right? here or rabbit trail or whatever you want to call it, a little tangent for a moment. Because as I'm going through and I'm preparing and I'm looking at the influence that kind of, that kind of lays out this, the reason for this argument, right? So I'm looking at this, Paul's talking about why are you saying that there's no resurrection? Then I look at historical context and I begin to see, okay, there's different tribes, you know, groups of people who are saying, well, there's no resurrection. So there's an influence. And then out of that, we see all these different Gnostic groups come up. And so uh, part of what I like to do is I like to ask questions, right? So um, I just, my side note here is just to give you a little bit of about the big tech algorithm, right? So I asked Google a question that I thought was just a really simple one. And that is, what's the difference between Christianity or a Christian and a Gnostic? What's the difference between a Christian and a Gnostic, right? Because in essence, if these Gnostic groups began to form, acknowledging that Jesus was a prophet, but they denied the resurrection, then there would be some form of Christian faith inside of it. And, and let me tell you, I asked the question, I just, I just want to preface this, difference between a Christian and a Gnostic, and I got a very defined, immediate answer. A Christian is an abject worshiper of a petty, irrational dictator God. A Gnostic bows to no God except his or her own innate divinity. A Christian has a God no greater than a human shell of a man and God easily comprehended and a God easily comprehended by the human mind. The inner divinity of the Gnostic is limitless. And I thought, man, 
they know exactly what they're talking about. And I, all I could think about was Owen Wilson, right? Wow. And in case you're not familiar, in every movie, every movie that he has ever done, at some point he has gone, wow. And so it's kind of a meme. So underneath this, there was a section that said additional questions people ask. Would you like to know some additional questions people ask when they're talking about Christianity and Gnosticism? what are the powers of a Gnostic, right? Because that was exactly like my, I wanted to know. And it told me the second great component of Gnostic thought is magic, properly so-called. Good news, become a Gnostic and you're a 12th level mage instantaneously. Oh, wow, that's fantastic, right? More questions people ask. What is another word for Gnostic? Like this I loved, right? I loved this one. Synonyms for Gnostic include keen, brilliant, perceptive, astute, clever, smart, penetrating, piercing, shrewd, and brainy. And I just thought, man, this is so incredible. Like my life has been touched. All right, so, so I, I have no idea. I told my wife, I said, I have to show this. Like I'm laughing to tears in my eyes that, that this is what I was given with such confidence, like, right? Okay, but here's the reality. The Christian faith has a cost. This is the reason why there's this tension for compromise is because, because we, what we don't want to say is that, hey, listen, belief in Jesus and the resurrection means that some things are not going to make sense, right? My, my, my oldest, he, he likes to say, you know, it's impossible. That's why they call it a miracle, right? He's a miracle performing God, meaning that he does things we can't do right? I can't do these things without him. Uh, Look at Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's, there's not, there's not some like, like, deceit going on, right? The scriptures make it very plain that becoming a Christian means that there are some things that you're going to have to like really wrestle with, and you're gonna have to come to grips with, and there's gonna be sacrifice. And there's a lot of these verses, Philippians 3 verse eight, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He goes on in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So writing there in Philippians, I'm willing to do whatever it takes, right? I'm willing to be in a position of suffering, right? For what? The resurrection, Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul is confronting false doctrine, and, and this is so important that, he, that, that we get a hold of why it's important to confront false doctrine. Because here's the thing, and this is the thing that hits me, right? Whenever I, you know, get spicy and kind of confront some false teaching that we see popping up in the church globally, inevitably I have somebody who says, and they do it in private and with respect, but there's a, there's a mindset that says, well, man, you're just, Pastor Jim, just, I feel like you're being really mean right? You, you might hurt their feelings, right? And I'm not going to lie to you. Like that speaks to me. Like I think, well, I don't want to be mean and hurt somebody's feelings. Like I, I may come across like, you know, like, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm good with that, but I'm a very sensitive person. Like I cried for like two hours after I watched the movie Click, okay? Right? I thought, oh my gosh, I could just completely lose my whole life. And it fast forward in front of me. Anyway, terrible, right? I, I cried during Peach Dragon, okay? The, my kids looked over and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, leave me alone, you know? So I'm sensitive, right? Okay. All right. But, but at the end of the day, like it, what is the most important part of my faith? The most important part of my faith obviously is my relationship with Christ. Following that is your relationship with Christ. And so if I'm not leading you to the cross and not leading you to Jesus, right, then there's no amount of good that I'm doing that's going to help you. And this is, this is one of the problems with the way that we define justice 
and, and I heard it said this way, like, like the church right now has, has taken justice as defined by Karl Marx and, and, and taken that definition and inserted it into scripture and made the scriptures now like some tool for Marxism. And, and justice is, 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 not, is, is not based on a, an immediate reaction or an immediate writing of wrong. No, justice is about eternity, right? So if I right a wrong at the expense of someone's eternity, then I have not righted anything, right? All I have done is continued what will ultimately be their own personal oppression. What I'm saying is not that we don't do good things, we don't stand up when, you know, for when something wrong is being done, but we never ever do it at the expense of the gospel. And we never do it without the gospel, right? We don't, we don't do that without bringing… And so, so Paul here, he's, he's giving us a really good case study of what it looks like to just speak up when it comes to something that's being taught that is wrong. Let's go on here in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So if we're not going to be raised from the dead, then I'm going to tell you Christ hasn't been raised from the dead either. And this is the contention that he's making, right? He's telling them, like, you, don't, you can't say that Christ is able to be raised from the dead, but he's not capable of raising the saints from the dead. And then if Christ was not, if Jesus was not resurrected, right, then his prayer into your hands, I commit myself, was a prayer of annihilation, right? Because if, if Jesus ultimately died and, and, and ceased to exist and was absorbed into some other consciousness, then when he said, I, I, I commit myself to you, right, into your hands, he was praying a prayer of annihilation. And, and those are things that just, that, like, honestly, we, we would read that. We'd go, no, oh, that's, that's not what was being communicated, right? Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So what is this picture of something being in vain? It means to be void, to be emptied, right? To be void, to be emptied. So Paul has addressed heretical teaching on sexual lifestyles. We've been going through that in the letter. Identity, race, materialism, idolatry, okay? He's gone through all these different things, right? But watch what he does here. He says that denying the resurrection makes our faith empty. So this is incredibly strong language. He's talking about sinful lifestyles, interacting with people, and he's condemning them. But then we come to this picture of the resurrection and he says, like, if, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, if the resurrection is a lie, then our faith is void. It's empty. It is in vain. He goes on in verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So, he uses, again, some legal language here, misrepresenting. This is false witness or the bearer of lies. So it means that we came and we gave a testimony that was not true. So you have people who would say, I've had an encounter with Jesus. And what are they doing? They are lying about their encounter with Jesus. He says here that we testified about God, right? And again, legal language. What does that mean? To bear witness, to give evidence. So you have people who are coming out and they are basically perjuring themselves. They're just making it up. And Paul's trying to, he's like, well, listen, it's your logic, track with me here, it's your logic that makes you question the resurrection. Well, let's use that same logic. Then why in the world would a group of people, right, su subject themselves to violent deaths if it was all a lie? At some point, something has to give inside of the argument. And he says, I don't just believe this. I'm testifying that I have personally experienced it. And this is why I said last week that as a pastor, it's good to have knowledge. It's good to be read. It's good to be schooled, right? But I genuinely believe that you also need to have had an experience, right? And, and when we don't have an experience with Jesus, we don't have a tether to the Scriptures, so you must prove, this is the argument that he's really building on, is that you must prove Christ was not resurrected in order to overcome the overwhelming evidence, right? This is the reason for the legal 
uh, language that he's using is he says, like at this point, there's so much evidence that's been presented and you have access to so much that if you don't want to believe the resurrection, I need you to prove that it didn't happen because you have all these people that are willing to die bloody gruesome deaths because they believe it because of an experience and an encounter that they've had. You need to explain to me why they're willing to do this. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So if you reject the resurrection of the saints, then the same logic mandates you reject the resurrection of Christ. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So the same logic mandates that if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. What is futile? Again, vain, unreal, unproductive. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So the same logic mandates that if our faith is futile, then those that came before us are gone. Meaning that we don't get to have it this way where it's like, man, I, you know, uh, I believe in Jesus and I know that they're in a better place, but I don't buy into the resurrection, Right? Right? If I don't buy into the resurrection, then, then, this, is, then this, is, this is saying that these people that have gone before us, that I want to say they're in a better place, that they have perished. What does that mean? To destroy fully. To destroy fully. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so the same logic mandates that if in death we are all destroyed, then living for Christ is to be pitied. What is pitied? That is to be miserable. And so Paul just says, like, like if we're going to use this logic train, let's, we're going to take it all the way to its, to its end. Why are you even showing up? Right? Why are you claiming to be a follower of Christ? Because by denying the resurrection, everything else that you're trying to say, it's undone. What is he saying? He's saying here, and this is coming out of the gospel, it's all foundationally built on the resurrection. It, that's where it all goes to. Co- coincidentally, I, I watched uh, uh, a podcast, part of a podcast. It was a little over four hours this week. And I know some of you may not like some of these people, but Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson had like a four plus hour uh, podcast this last week. And uh, one of the things that Jordan Peterson said that I thought was really interesting is that um, denying the Bible, right? And this is from somebody who is not a professing Christian, okay? But he said, denying the Bible is, is and I'm, I'm going to try to word this the best I can. I'd encourage you to go look at the clip. But denying the Bible basically creates a fracture in society because all ideas trace themselves back to the Bible, right? Because whether, and he used the example, like whether or not you want to trace your ideology back to, you know, Dante's Inferno, right? And you would say, well, my belief system comes from a group of people that were, you know, spurred off of, you know, the teaching. There's never been any teaching more prolific and, and more influential in the world. And so basically, the, the, the very ability to communicate and have rational thought in any topic tethers itself back to the Bible. And, and, and that, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because when we begin to deny the resurrection, Paul's saying like it all falls apart because the resurrection impacts it all. It impacts all of it, just like the Bible impacts really every aspect of society, right? It can become the fuel that burns the fire for the person that hates God, right? Or it can become the fuel that burns the fire for the person that's passionate for God, but it still brings itself back to God's word. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul switches back to the facts, right? So he's gone down the logic argument. He kind of reins it back in. Why? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Can I tell you, when you are presenting the gospel, right, you do not have to wear yourself out on this, right? When somebody is saying, I don't want anything to do with it, I don't believe it, I don't receive it. The natural person, the person that's naturally minded, it's not on us, right? The Spirit of God has to do the work, 
okay? So we present the gospel. How do we do that? I want to just reiterate this. We talk about the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, okay? And then we've got to talk about our experience. It's a, it's a bigger story, the gospel and its influence in my life. When we do that, we set the Holy Spirit up to do the work that He can do, okay? And so what is Paul doing? Paul constantly operates like this. He's like, look, I'll lay out, I'll go down the rabbit hole with you for a moment, but I know that there is no amount of logic that I'm going to bring to the table that's going to bring a change or transformation in your life. Only the Spirit of God can do that. So I'm going to go back to what is right doctrine for Christians who want to live as Christians. And that's important for us, right? So Ecclesiastes 2 verse 16, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, right? Solomon's writing this. He says, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool, right? So what separates the wise and the fool? Nothing if the fool is correct, and yet everything if the wise is correct. And what is Solomon talking about? Solomon's talking about like, I'll be forgotten by man, right? It doesn't matter how wise I am or what a fool I am. Nobody's going to remember anyway, right? It's only, it's only through Christ that there is any type of, uh, uh, of advantage. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Where is that referencing? Back in Genesis 3, right? This is where we get death's introduction. There was no death, right? Sin enters the picture. Death comes in, in, right? Okay, so Adam sins. Death now becomes a reality. Romans 5, Paul writing to the church in Rome. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So death made its way throughout humanity because everyone sinned. Jesus comes on the scene. He lives a life without sin, and he is murdered. His life is taken from him, and that becomes the perfect sacrifice, right? That's the atonement that was needed. Go on to verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul clarifies this, right? But he uses this word shall, right? So for as in Adam all die. That's established. That is, a, that is a historical thing that we can receive, right? Death is coming, right? Every one of us is going to face this at some point. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is a, a term that is yet to come. I'll get to that in just a moment. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So what is he saying? This idea of shall is that there is a process that has started, but it has not been completed. The process is at work. It's working, right? But it has not yet been completed. So we look to Jesus's resurrection as the hope to the resurrection that the saints will experience. He uses this term that at his coming, right? Again, this is, uh, uh, this is a way for us to know when exactly the process is close to being fulfilled. That is when he is near or has physically arrived. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And Paul moves right Paul comes in and he's, and he's laying out this argument for the importance of the gospel, understanding the gospel, presenting the gospel, and now for accepting the resurrection. And then he's like, I know that there are some of you that are like, man, I'll believe part of this, but I won't believe all of this. And so he, he, he switches gears here, right? And, and he's trying, he's trying to, to speak to something inside of us. And he says that the, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. What is the end? The end is the, an aim or purpose of an event or issue, completion, right? So an end doesn't just exist out there with nothing, right? It requires some type of process. In order for there to be an end, there has to be a process at work, right? There has to be a process in order for there to be an end. 
So what is he going to do? He's going to destroy every rule and every authority and power. And so this is a picture of a prince going to war and returning with the spoils for the king. So this is, this is, a, this is a sharp contrast in imagery, right? He says, look, you've got all these ideas, all these things you want to be true, but you need to understand something right? When the end comes, when the resurrection is happening, Jesus is showing up and, and he's, he's not coming around and having a little sit down conversation with you. What would you like eternity to look like? Please, we're doing a little reference thing and we're going to try to have a little bit of everything for everybody, right? No, no, it's been established. It's been established. And he says that these, that, 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 that Jesus in the end is going to come and he's going to do what? He's going to, he's going to take out every leader that stands opposed. They'll be vanquished. It'll be over. The imagery says that Jesus is the great victor. Jesus is going to come and he's going to raise up the saints, right? And that everyone that stands opposed to him, right? And, and, and at what level of opposition does he come, right? Does he say that's not okay? right? I, I got to tell you, I've had people in my life, people I would consider to be really good, close friends, people that have sat at my table in my home, that have been around my children, who I believe have, my, have, have at parts in life had my family's back, right? At 95%. But as soon as that 5% rears its head and they turn, right? You have to say, well, this is unsafe right? And so if somebody is 5% of the time, right, uh, 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 wants to hurt you or hurt your family, right, or 1% of the time, right, what, what 0.1% of the time, there's a 0.1% chance that when they come over to your house for dinner, it's going to end in tragedy. Do you allow them to come into your house? No, you don't allow them to come into your house, right? And so Jesus is not looking for the, this group of people that are 99% like, hey, Jesus, I'm good with everything you said except for this. Like, I just, I don't think a, a, a real God would say this, right? And, and, and Paul says, like, you need to understand that your thoughts, right, are going to be subject in the end. Because in the end, he's going to come. And for what purpose? for the resurrection of the saints and the tearing down, what, of sin and death. He's going to go on with this. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So while we wait for the day that end, Jesus reigns in his church as mediator between the Father and man. And I, I got to tell you, I, I genuinely believe that this is the reason why we'll lay out uh, what we're going to be teaching for a year, 14 months in advance. We'll have verse by verse teaching. We have a whole calendar that our, our uh, production and lead team have access to that shows what we're teaching, right? What the next series is, right? And I cannot tell you how many times, like during the week, something happens that's like culturally explosive. And then that Sunday, that's the content that's already in front of us. You know why I believe that is because Jesus is the mediator, right? We want to be subject, subject to that. Like I, I want to be in the place where I'm, I'm teaching the word as Jesus would have it taught. I want to be subject to that. So when I get it wrong, I want, I want the elders of the church to come and say, hey, this is off base or you're doing this wrong, right? Because Jesus, this is where he reigns right now. And so currently we cannot be in the father's presence, but soon we will. Soon we will. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And this is important for us, right? What is death? Nobody is making the argument here in the church at this time that death was the death of the soul. Okay? It's not a, that's not really the argument. It's not the, that's not the most popular idea. What is it? It's death of the body. So why would there need to be an end to death, Right? Why would there need to be this place, right? When the enemy is, when the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is destroyed. It doesn't exist anymore. So here's the reality though. It will exist until sin is destroyed. Romans 6 verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Roman, I mean, Revelation 20, verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Listen, what's happening is God restores all things. This is the power of this text right here, right? Is, is, is that the resurrection 
is the fulfillment and the restoration of things as uh, the way that God intended it from the beginning. So we were designed to be a soul and a body. This is why there's a resurrection. Because God did not make a mistake in the garden. God did not develop and design Adam and bring Eve into the picture and go, man, okay, if I could redo this, I'd do it without the bodies. Right? That's not, what, that's, not what, that's not the case. And so in restoration, for death to be vanquished, sin has to be gone. And there's a, res, there's a restoration. That restoration involves resurrection. And when death is destroyed, the separation of the soul and body will never again be an issue. And Paul says this is really critical to our faith. So much so, watch what he does here in these next verses. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. What is subjection? To be subordinate, to obey. Hebrews 2, 7, you made him for a while, for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Right here, Hebrews 2, what's being said? That God's in control. Like the idea of resurrection, the idea of restoration, the idea of sin being destroyed, like those are not things that we, like we have to sit here and go, well, they might happen. There's a good chance, you know, the odds are good. No, 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 everything is subjected to God, right? And when Jesus came on the scene, everything became subjected to Jesus. So there is a control. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So God has the authority and therefore the capacity to restore, to implement, to empower, to restructure, it is within his control. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. And what is he saying here? This is not a divided empire right? It's not God and Jesus and they're at war. Jesus is going to be submitted to the Father, right? The ultimate restoration of things. Look at Ephesians 1 here at the end of verse 9 into verse 10, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Listen, at the end of it all, disorder and confusion will cease. Peace and love will reign from the source. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's the hope of the resurrection is that we are both physically and spiritually in the same plane of existence as the creator and that he is the source that prevents sin and destruction and all the heartache that we experience. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? The dead are not raised at all. Why are people baptized on their behalf? So this is, this is a, a really interesting passage here. Maybe you've read this before and kind of wondered what Paul was getting at. So the question that we have to ask is, is Paul switching gears? Okay, because if he's asking the next question, then he is somehow switching gears. And that is, is he referencing a practice in which people are baptized on behalf of others who are dead? Uh, here's the reality, and, and I spent a lot of time looking into this and, and digging into it um, specifically to try to bring as much clarity as I can to the conversation. Uh, most commentators don't think that this is what Paul was saying. There are some that do, and a lot of uh, teaching says that, you know, just reading it in an English translation, we'll look at it and go, well, you know, Paul is here talking about people who lost loved ones and they were fearful for their souls, so they would be baptized on their behalf. And, and we actually find very little, if any, historical evidence of this actually happening during this time, okay? So if that were the action, we don't, we don't have any context for that. But um, a lot of commentators point to uh, looking at some, some better interpretations of, the, uh, of specifically the word baptized. Remember that baptized, we use that as a religious term. 
okay? But in the, uh, among the Jews, this was a commonly used word uh, that it literally meant to dip or to submerge, okay? So, so it meant to be, you know, this is why when we baptize, we baptize by bringing somebody completely under the water and out because that, that was what the word baptized meant, okay? So when you were baptized publicly, brought into this place and brought down, it was a ceremony where you brought everybody together. What for the confession of sin, that Jesus is Lord of your life, that is how life, that is how was taking place, but that they were to, to, that they were submerged, submerged in what? That these are people who are baptized by being immersed in sufferings because of their believing in and testifying to the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead, right? So what Paul, what a lot of commentators think is that Paul is actually saying that people are so bought into the resurrection right? In their faith that when you buy into that, that it is not an easy thing for somebody outside to accept. So there is a certain amount of persecution that you are submitting yourself to when you begin to declare Jesus is risen. I don't know how it happened, but that's because Jesus is greater than I am. And one day he's coming and he's redeeming this world. And all of those that serve him will be redeemed alongside of him, right? And so there is a resurrection yet to come for the saints. And so when you present that to an unbelieving world, right, you are mocked, right? You are ridiculed. And so there is a suffering that takes place. And he says, why would people go through that suffering if they did not believe that it were true? Why would you submit yourself to the hardship if you yourself did not believe that the hardship were a necessity? And then we tether that in context to the next thought, right? Why are we in danger every hour? Okay. So why would people, uh, why would people w- be willing to suffer for a lie, right? Why would they be willing to? So if you're lying, you admit it in the face of a violent death. And this is one of the arguments that, that, that I think is really profound when we're talking about the, the disciples, right? So that, you know, they go on to become the apostles and you go, man, they move into this level of high leadership and man, look at them. They're, they're traveling the world, living life. Man, they are in incredibly difficult times. A lot of the cities under Roman Empire required that in order to enter through the main gates, you had to stop and you had to declare that Caesar was God. And if you didn't declare that Caesar was God, if you refused to do that, you would be impaled right there, right? And so they would have these spears of, with bodies on them, like lining the sides. And so to enter into the city, you had to declare that Caesar was God, right? Now, if you are a follower of Christ, then you know that there is only one God and Caesar is not God, right? And so you're not going to make that declaration. So literally, they are living in a time where being a, a, a Christian, right, could ultimately mean that they would die. In fact, it did mean that for the majority of them. And if you just got to think, like, I think John is really a great one to look at they bring him in, they ask him, you know, recant this, like, you know, acknowledge that there is no Jesus, there is no resurrection, or what we're going to do is we're going to basically throw you into a pot of boiling oil, right? We're going to fry your body, right? I mean, in the face of being deep fried alive, do you not go, yeah, yeah, I made this whole thing up. We all got together, there was a weekend in Barbados, and we were all betting each other, like, this will never, we'll never, you know, I bet we can do this, and we falsify... No, I, Jesus is king. He is risen. All right, you understand we're about to, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then they throw him in and his body doesn't give up his spirit. So they can't kill him. And what do they do? They take and they put him on an island for prisoners. And there he lives out his days on the Isle of Patmos doing what? He figures out how to get some papyrus and has an encounter with an angel and begins to write out the book of Revelation. The argument is, is, is why would people go through this suffering? This is the argument Paul is making every hour. Why would people do this, right? If they did not believe that death was a necessity for them in order to receive resurrection. And so he says here, and finalizing these thoughts, he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. I die every day. So he objects to any denial of the resurrection. Any denial of the resurrection is not okay. But because of his confidence in them, he continues to make personal sacrifices for their benefit. He continues to go through a position of suffering and and being in places that are dangerous. Why? Because he wants to continue to share the gospel because it is that important. Look at Luke 9, 23 again. What does he say? And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So there was not some promise that believing the scriptures was going to be this thing that was super simple or that you could even explain, right? I mean, if we could explain it all in some really simple terms, then logically people from the outside would go, oh yeah, well, that makes sense, you know, then I'm, I'm on board. This is why it's faith, right? Go back to verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And, and he just, he's just going to keep going back into this thought right here. He's like, why would I do this? I mean, think about it. Like, why would I face danger, right? I'm, I'm doing this for you. I'm willing to be in a position of dying, right? And I do this every day. I mean, why would I go and, and face the mob that I faced when I was in Ephesus, right? That was the mob in Acts 19, right? That the, when they heard that these were a group of Christians, Christ followers. They were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Why? Because Jesus had been presented and with Jesus, there was no need for idols. And the idol makers were like, whoa, this is bad for business, right? And so in order for me to make the money I need, I need people to buy idols. And so they create a crazed mob, right? Mob mentality, Mob rule and everyone loses their mind. Paul says like in human terms, it was like facing some vicious beasts. These people wanted to kill us, right? If I was making it all up, if there was no resurrection, would I not in the midst of that go, hey, hey, guys, 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 we just made it all up. Go back to your idols. Hey, I'll commit a, a community service, 500 hours to building idols for you, you know, just chill out. No, like he's, he's, he's giving them these, these examples over and over. And then he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? Because if there is no resurrection, if it's all made up with our hopes of resurrection gone, the value of humanity ceases. So just do whatever you want. There's no reason for morality. So somebody, uh, uh, Dawkins makes the argument, uh, he's a, a kind of famous atheist in, in today's culture, and he makes the argument like, like you know, that Christians... Uh, believe that they have uh, the right to morality and that an atheist can't be moral, right? And uh, I would say that that's not the case at all. I, I think anybody can be moral, right? But there's not a reason for an atheist to be moral. They can choose to be moral, right? And they can choose to decide what's moral and decide what where they want to find that morality, right? And I believe that if it's going to really, you know, subjectively be moral in our world, they're going to end up back at the Bible, uh, on some level, but there's nothing that, that is calling them to morality, and so they don't have to be moral. But as Christians, we have to be moral, right? We're being, we are called to be moral. In fact, look at what he does when he comes out of this, right? In verse 33, he says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And this was the verse that really, like, I told Carmen, and I was like, man, I wish I had gotten this taught in context at some point in my life when I was younger. Because this definitely, right? I mean, pastors use this all the time. Like, you got to keep good company, right? But when we look at this in the context of what Paul is talking about, Paul is talking about the fact that, that the resurrection is, is essential to the faith. And if we're going to have bad doctrine, right? Well, who are the people that are presenting the bad doctrine, right? They're people that are calling themselves, eh, I'm Christian. I just don't believe this part of it. That's the bad company, it's not the, the crack dealer down the street, right? It's not like he's going, listen, when you get saved, do your best not to go and hang out with the, you know, the mafia or go join ISIS. Like these are probably not good things. You know what I'm saying? Like he's, he's talking about people that don't, that claim to be believers, but they don't hold to the sanctity of the scriptures. And what does he say? He said, don't be deceived. I, I want you to hear me on this because I, I want to hear this. Don't be deceived. 
you cannot maintain that company and not be affected. That's, that's, that's tough. That's tough, right? So this, this that, that, that text right there, this passage is taken from something called Thais of Menander, who probably borrowed it from Socrates, right? And a lot of people will, will point to that. And I think that's good. I think it's good for us to be able to see that Paul will quote uh, what's relevant in culture, right? He's well-read, and he is very aware of what is, uh, what the culture believes, right? So what Paul is addressing is the culture, and he's using cultural terminology to do it, right? So this is one of the reasons why, you know, people say, well, I just, I wish that, you know, at the church, we just wouldn't get into some of those things, because everything's political now, you know what I'm saying? So that's the thing, you're you're too political, right? So if you're going to talk about sanctity of life, that's too political, or you're going to, you're going to steer the way somebody votes. I got to tell you, like, like I can't even, and I I love comic books, right? I I can't even read comic books without politics anymore, right? I can't watch Star Wars without politics anymore. And and that's our culture. Like our culture is a, is a political culture. You know what I'm saying? And so, so I'm very aware of what's happening and it's very difficult to get up and present the gospel and do it in a way that everybody walks out being able to believe what they want to believe, right? And that's really what culturally we want. We don't want to be challenged in our beliefs. And he says, he says, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So I got to tell you, this passage is largely ignored by Christians. And I think that it's the reason that so many Christians end up in this quote unquote deconstruction phase and this thing of like, like, you know, losing their religion, but finding their spirituality because they do not believe that the company they keep right? And we're not talking about like the, the person you go to work with or the person you're sharing the gospel with. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the person that you watch football with, that you go out to dinner with, the person that you hang with, right? That, that it will, this is what the scriptures say, it will create corruption in your own morality. And so we tend to believe that we are exempt because we are too strong. I hear this argument all the time. It's like, well, this isn't sin, so what's the big deal, right? And it's like, yeah, but sometimes that's the path to sin, right? Right? The path to sin is paved with good intentions, you know? And, and Paul says, like, like I, here's the hard thing is for those of you that believe the resurrection, you've got to make some decisions, Right? You've got to make sure that you are not allowing people that are bought into a false gospel to be some major influence in your life. And I don't know why it is that Christians believe that they're the exception. But man, I meet followers of Christ, quote unquote, all the time. They go, yeah, well, I'm different. Like, I know what I believe, right? And Paul says, it doesn't matter if you know what you believe. He says the company you keep will affect your morals. So Paul's making it clear, teachers of bad doctrine are bad company. This is the bad company we need to be concerned with, right? Okay. So bad company will impact you morally. And then verse 34, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Awake here translates to arise from the incoherence of a slumber produced by overindulgence. That's the type of awaken that's here. And this idea where he says, for some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame, right? That these are people who claim to be followers of Christ, but they have no knowledge of God. They don't understand the workings of God, right? This shame, this is confusion, rebuke. I say this to rebuke you. You should be embarrassed. You should be embarrassed. And I got to tell you, Paul has no issue offering a strong rebuke to those defiling the faith. Let's stand to our feet. Listen, my intention is not to bring a rebuke to you. I would think that if you are a follower of Christ, you at least in some some basic understanding believe in the resurrection. This isn't really a thing that's uh, hotly debated within the church, uh, at least right now. It's not debated within our church walls, I'll say that. uh, the important thing is, is that sometimes as Christians, we just go, yeah, well, I mean, this is basically what Christians believe, so I believe it. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Followers of Christ, right? Begin to understand what 
you believe. Let it become a part of your vocabulary and your life. My hope is in the resurrection, right? So, so at the end of the day, right, I'm, I, I don't want... I don't want to die at the age of 42, right? Okay. Um, uh, this last year, uh, we had some real heavy sickness in our home, right? My, my daughter uh, broke down a couple of weeks ago and was telling us that it was just 2021 was just so scary because at one point she thought I was going to die and she thought that my wife was going to die. We don't want to die, right? Okay. And we don't want our kids to want us to die. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're, we're good with living, right? Okay. But Paul, Paul hits the nail on the head. I have a peace. I understand that I'm, I'm, this is temporary, right? That's, that's, that's not my expectation. That's my belief system. And so while I'm fighting to live, right, and continuing to pour into my family and love them and raise my kids to know and love the Lord, right? Like, like if whatever, whatever the end is, right, I have to be okay with that. Why? I'm not in fear because of resurrection. The resurrection, it's an eternal thing, and I'm okay with that. And I, I feel, man, the call for me in this, and maybe this is just, maybe I'm just ranting, but I just felt like the Holy Spirit was really correcting some things that are inside of me. And um, I have led as a pastor for so long trying not to rock the boat with, uh, when it comes to some, some doctrinal things, right? And I, we use the language open-handed, closed-handed, right? Closed-handed, these are things we won't debate. Uh, open-handed, these are things we can debate. And I have allowed a lot of things that I think should be closed-handed to be in the open-handed category because I, I just didn't want to rock the boat. And I'm looking at this text that, I mean, I've read through the book of First Corinthians, I don't know how many times, but teaching through it and really looking at context, I'm like, man, Paul is he's coming at them and telling them, like, you cannot deny this doctrine. Your, your morality is at stake. You cannot do it. And I just want to say, like, like, I would encourage you, right? I'm not telling you we go out and shame people. Know what you believe, though. Amen? Now, if you are not a believer and you want to know Jesus, it's really simple. Scripture says we will believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved, right? When we come to the, the, to the saving knowledge that we can't do it ourselves, that we need somebody else, right? And we, we receive Christ, right? That's the beginning. And then we begin to go into this teaching and we begin to change the way we live. And note, note here, Paul didn't tell him, now get out of the church building because you, you didn't believe it right. He just says, let me challenge you. Now start believing right. And that's a part of our faith. That's a part of our walk as Christians. That's a part of our walk. Come on, I want to pray for you. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your faithfulness. Thank you for your word. I pray that we would be encouraged to be strong in the faith, strong in the faith as Christians, uh, followers of you. I just... Lord, we want, to, we want to be in a place where we inhabit what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. That every day people would see the Holy Spirit at work inside and through us. Lord, also allow us to grow in our intellect and understanding so that we can comprehend and, and properly teach and explain what it is we believe from your word. Allow us to always be challenged every day that we have breath. Lord, may we honor you in all that we do. We love you and praise you in your mighty name. Amen. If you want to know Jesus as Lord of your life, if you need prayer, prayer ministry teams are in the back. They want to pray with you. Uh, we make ourselves available for that every week. Uh, if not, be challenged this week to be uh, thinking about what you believe. We've got a whole series coming up in four weeks, I believe, on doctrine. And we're going to do 10 weeks on some of the like basic doctrines of the faith. So if this is, if this is intriguing, look for more of that to come. We love you guys. We'll see you next Sunday. As always, go change your world.